The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. For the first 18 or so verses of John, um, we've been taking our time going through it basically almost word by word, uh, looking at what this passage is about, what this gospel is all about. Um, And then as of here, as of verse 19, uh, John's uh, style changes a little bit. So he goes from um, telling us uh, about Jesus and, and who he is and, and what kind of king and savior Jesus is, that he is actually God and he is eternally with God, the, the second person of the Holy Trinity and, and all that. Uh, and then here in verse 19, he's, John starts to lay out for us beginning from day one, the, the things that Jesus did. It goes into storytelling mode. And so we're going to, um, from here on, we're going to start to stretch our legs a little bit when it comes to looking at this passage. So rather than just doing one or two verses at a time, we're going to take in a little bit more each week. And what we're looking at today is the first day of the first week of Jesus' ministry. John spent the first 18 verses explaining the magnitude and the significance and the beauty of who Jesus is. He's been answering the question, who is Jesus? And then in this next section, John's going to start answering the question, why does this matter? Why does all of this matter? Why is this good news? And the reason... The answer that he gives that it's good news is because our God is the great comforter to us in our distress. Our God is merciful to us in our weakness. He is the healer of our hearts and he is the comforter of our souls. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He is merciful to us. He does not give us what we deserve, but He is the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. And even though we're studying John today. I want that verse there to be like a bit of a banner over today's message. He comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction that through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Knowing that God is merciful to us, knowing that God comes to us in our weakness, in our affliction, and He comes to comfort us and to console us and to be with us is key to knowing God's goodness. It's key to having a great affection for God and it's key for having great courage in mission and evangelism. So let's pray and then we're going to get into God's word. Father, you are the God of all mercies and the God of all comfort and we come to you, lean our hearts before you and asking, Lord, that by your word you would minister to us through your spirit. We ask, Holy Spirit, for you to dwell in a wonderful, Jesus-exalting way to us this morning. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes a little bit wider to receive again, to see again the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that you would communicate your word to us 
in, in gracious and merciful ways, Father. Help us to see it and to, for the, our spiritual eyes to be open, Father. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt incredible distress and pain and anxiety and anguish and someone's come along and they've just had the right words to say? They've just said the right thing. They've comforted you. About 18 months ago, I sat uh, with a close friend of mine, Kylam Lewis. He's the lead pastor of LCC Northflex. And I was going through a pretty rough time. I had feelings of despair and anxiety and felt like I couldn't go on any further. And Kylam sat with me and he didn't solve my problems. He didn't troubleshoot my issues. He didn't brainstorm ways out. He just told me the gospel. He just told me that God loves me. He told me that God has accepted me because of his acceptance of me, not because of anything I've done. And I was comforted. I was comforted by the gospel. I was comforted by God's word. Another time, a number of years ago, I was battling some fairly intense anxiety and I had this moment on on the couch in our living room where I was just at the bottom of the barrel. I just felt like I was scraping the bottom of the barrel and was weeping and crying and I couldn't control myself. And my wonderful wife came and sat next to me and read aloud uh, the words of Paul in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God over and over again. And I was comforted. I was comforted. Nothing in my circumstance or situation changed, but I was comforted. When was a time that you have been comforted like this? Not necessarily made comfortable, but comforted by someone. Where you felt your anxieties and your worry melt away at the comforting words of another. Well, there are words of comfort that are embedded into this passage this morning. And my hope today is that God will lift these words up to our heart. And he will show us by his word that Jesus comforts us in our anxiety. Jesus comes to us in our stress and our anguish and our pain and our worry. He is here for us and he comes to us. John's going to be answering the question, why is the gospel good news? And the way he answers that question is actually by asking another question. The question that he asks to answer this other question is, who is John the Baptist? The answer to who John the Baptist is points us to why the gospel is good news. It gives us the answer to why the gospel is good news. And the way that John's going to answer this question is by pointing out, he's going to come in three parts. He's firstly going to tell us who John the Baptist isn't. Then he's going to tell us who John the Baptist is. And then he's going to tell us what John the Baptist does. Who John the Baptist isn't, who John the Baptist is, and then what John the Baptist does. Before we get there, though, we need to understand the the state of Israel at the time of this. We're we're embarking upon this this Gospel of John, and we're, we're going to be reading through the ministry of Jesus. And so we need to understand he's not on the Sunshine Coast. Jesus was not ministering in Caloundra. This is a very different set of circumstances there. And just to give you a bit of background to this, around 400 years before these events, the people of Israel had actually returned from exile. 
The exile was this really significant and horrible moment in Israel's history. It's hard to overstate just how devastating and terrible the exile was for God's people. Imagine a foreign nation invading Australia, killing thousands upon thousands of people, destroying our our most significant and important landmarks and cities, and then taking the survivors away as slaves. Israel went through that. They actually went through that. The Babylonians came and attacked and dragged them off as their slaves, dragged the the people of Judah away as slaves to Babylon, where they remained there in exile as slaves for 70 years. Now, we can look back at 70 years and go, that's a pretty small amount of time in, in the grand history, in the grand scope of things, but that's an entire lifetime. And then by God's grace and his providence, he, he brought the people of Israel back to Judah, back to Jerusalem, and they were allowed to return and they were allowed to rebuild their city, which they did. However, it, it kind of didn't really come back to its completion in the way, in things like, in, in the way that it was originally. They were back in their homeland, but they were still under foreign rule and that changed uh, management a few times in, over the next few hundred years. They didn't have their autonomy as the people of God. They still had the problem of sin in their hearts. The prophecies that predicted that they would return and that God would restore everything seemed only to be half fulfilled. And that's how they remained for about 400 years, kind of in this uh, waiting pattern, this holding pattern of things aren't as they should be, like they should be, but they're not like this at all. It's, it's, it felt like the, the, the prophecies had, be, had be, begun to become true, but not fully. It's kind of like buying like a new set of Lego. And Lego's great, doesn't matter how old you are, but it's like get a new set of Lego and you get it home and you unbox it and you start to set it up. And towards the end of it, you realize that there's a piece missing. Now, if you've ever experienced that, that is nasty. Like that is, that's a horrible feeling to get to the point where you go, there's a piece missing and I can't finish it. And, and not just any piece, like it's a, an important, a crucial piece that without that, you can't, you can't you know, replace that with anything else. Without that piece of Lego, the whole Lego set doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. It, it doesn't come together. And, and that's kind of how Israel was. It's like they had a piece missing. And as a crucial piece missing, it was the Messiah piece. They were back in their homeland. They had their temple. They were were allowed to obey their their own laws, but they were without the king, the the son of David, who was prophesied to come. That's where they were. The prophets had foretold that this Messiah would come, that he would be a hero, he would be a king, he would make everything right again. They weren't exactly sure how he would do this or what this would be like. They had their ideas, but he wasn't there yet. There, There were some pretenders who had come along, and claimed to be the Messiah, they gathered a bit of a following, but each one of them had just fizzled out into nothing. The crucial piece that had been prophesied was yet to come. This is the situation. This is the backdrop of the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And this brings us to our first point, who John the Baptist isn't. We get told in verse 19, this was John's testimony when the Jews from Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, who are you? So this sets up the question, who are you, John the Baptist? 
He had a massive, massive following. Um, he was also baptizing Jewish people, which was really quite strange. And so the Jews from Jerusalem wanted to find out who he was. And so they sent some priests and some Levites to go and ask him this question. And John, it seems, anticipates what their first question is going to be. Is he the Messiah? And we read in verse 20, he didn't deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. He just knew that that was going to be their first question. I am not the Messiah. He's not the hero that the Old Testament points towards. The next question then comes in verse 21. What then, they asked him, are you Elijah? Now, this might have sounded a little bit more plausible. Like Elijah, John was a bit of a wild man. He had a big bushy beard, wore rough clothing, and so he kind of looked like what they thought Elijah might look like. And the reason why Elijah was on the cards is because the very last couple of verses of the entire Old Testament, uh, in there, Malachi prophesies that Elijah, or one like Elijah, would return before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. However, John the Baptist denies this. I am not Elijah, he said. Now, this raises a question. Because if you're reading through the Gospels and you get to Matthew 11, it says there very clearly that Jesus says, that John the Baptist is Elijah. He does fill the shoes of this prophetic figure in either some partial or even full way. And it's kind of hard to know what to do with that. John the Baptist in John 1 is saying, I'm not Elijah. And then Jesus in Matthew 11 is saying, no, he is Elijah. It's hard to know what to do with it, but we could probably explain it quite simply by saying, John the Baptist didn't detect that much significance in his own ministry, whereas Jesus did. Even though John the Baptist denied that he was Elijah, Jesus knew better and affirmed it. So by his own admission, he's not Messiah. He's not Elijah according to him. They have one more option. Are you the prophet? They ask. And that's probably a reference to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses spoke of a prophet who would rise up and and would from among them and he would speak the words of God to them. This prophet was an end times kind of figure. But to that question, John says, no, I'm not the prophet. And so they're getting kind of desperate at this point. Who are you then, they asked. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. They couldn't return empty-handed and they probably needed to stop asking yes-no questions because John just keeps saying no. And so they get to this next question, what can you tell us about yourself? This is where you get to point number two, who John the Baptist is. He said, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. And I wonder if in that moment, if they all went, oh, we were about to say the voice. That was our next, we should have said, I told you we should have asked him if he was the voice, not Elijah. John's admission about the role that he plays here in the coming of the Messiah is incredibly important for understanding who Jesus is and why the gospel is so good. You see, John the Baptist is quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and that's a fairly important chapter in the Old Testament. And we've got to look at the context of Isaiah 40 to understand the full depth and the breadth of the meaning that John is talking about there as he identifies himself as this voice of one crying out in the wilderness. 
So to understand Isaiah 49, we need to go back and read Isaiah 39. If you want to flip there in your Bibles, you're more than welcome to have a bit of a scan of that as we speak. In Isaiah 39, we read the story of a king called King Hezekiah, and he's a bit of a, he's a mixed bag. He's faithful in some times, and then other times he's an absolute fool. And in Isaiah 39, there's a whole lot more details there we won't go into. But he basically brings uh, these representatives and these messengers from Babylon into his kingdom. He, he welcomes them into his kingdom and he walks around and he shows them basically all of Israel's treasury. He, he says, look at the, all of our money. Look at how much money we have. He gives them an all-access backstage pass to Israel's vaults, basically. And it kind of seems like what he's trying to do, he's trying to impress these Babylonian messengers so that he can establish some kind of a, um, uh, an, an alliance with Babylon. And this was the final straw from God, for God after centuries and centuries of Israel's disobedience where they had rejected God, where they had worshipped idols, where they had made alliances with foreign nations. And so God speaks to Hezekiah through Isaiah pronouncing his wrath-filled discipline on the people of Israel. The prophecy is essentially this. Exile is coming. The messengers from Babylon, these guys, they're going to return. And they're going to take everything. And they're going to take everyone. And they're even going to take your own sons, Hezekiah. Exile is coming. That was the message. And Hezekiah basically shrugs his shoulders at it, saying, you know, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm actually okay with this. Which is just, he's a fool, he's crazy. This is the nation of Israel we're talking about here. It's kind of like Israel just didn't think that something like this could happen. They're not really worried about it. After all, they were the people of God. Their nation had been established on the covenant that Yahweh had made with them. This is the same God who rescued them from slavery in Egypt. This is the same God who brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground. This is the same God who drove out the nations before them in Canaan, who provided manna and quail for them in the desert. This is the God who demonstrated his power and miraculous might and his strong arm in front of Israel and even at Israel time and time again. They knew how powerful God was, and they thought, well, we'll nothing will, bad will ever happen to us. We, we won't go into exile. we got God. God's not going to exile us. It's kind of like looking at the weather report and going, it's not going to rain tomorrow. If it says it's going to rain, it very well could rain. And this is God speaking through one of his prophets, saying exile is coming. And then when Babylon did eventually show up, about 100 years later, it was devastating. Not just because it was destructive and horrible, but because it felt like the covenant had failed. It felt like God had failed. It's hard to overstate just how much of a tragedy this was. Not because they were so sad about their nation falling apart, but they were, it was bewildering. How could this have failed? But God didn't actually fail. This was his discipline. This is what a good father does with unruly children. He disciplines them. And that's the context of Isaiah 40. If the message of Isaiah 39 is exile is coming, the message of Isaiah 40 is God is coming. In Isaiah 39, Isaiah is talking to Hezekiah about the things that are happening then, but then in Isaiah 40, he's prophesying about 100 years ahead of that. 
when, sorry, in Isaiah 39, he's talking about 100 years ahead of that. In Isaiah 40, he's talking about a 70 years beyond even that when they're going to return from exile. This is the context of Isaiah 40. And listen to the words of Isaiah 40 from chapter, chapter 40, verses 1 to 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. And John the Baptist is saying, I'm that voice. I'm that voice of Isaiah 40, chapter, chapter 40, verse 3. When he says that he is that voice, he's saying the exile is truly coming to an end. The final peace is on his way. The Messiah is coming. And John's job was to get, ready, get people ready for the Messiah, to make a straight highway for God in the desert. In the desert where it is dry and parched, where people are without hope, God is preparing a way. Isaiah goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, he says, Every valley will be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be leveled. The uneven ground will become smooth, and the rough places are plain. It's going to become easy. And the glory of the Lord will appear, and all humanity together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Remember what John's been saying? in the previous weeks, that we have seen his glory. And here's John the Baptist identifying himself as this voice. The glory of the Lord is coming. The glory of the Lord will appear. The physical exile of Israel had come to an end. About 400 years earlier, they had returned home and they had rebuilt, rebuilt but they were yet to see the, the end of their spiritual exile. They were yet to experience the glory of the Lord arriving to them. This is what the arrival of Jesus meant, that the glory of the Lord was here. In identifying himself as that voice, see, they've asked this question, Who, I, what can you say about yourself? And when he says, I'm the, that voice, he's actually not talking about himself. He's, he's again pointing to Jesus. This is what John the Baptist does. He points to Jesus. And if he's right, then what should God's people of that time expect to experience? It's comfort, comfort. When Isaiah, with his prophetic binoculars, looks at the state of Israel, at their pain, at their bewilderment, at their devastating loss, he says, well, God says, Comfort, comfort. Your time of slavery is over. Your sins have been pardoned. By saying that he is this voice, he's saying that the one who is coming after him, he is the one who will bring comfort to his people by releasing them from slavery and forgiving their sins. And the same message is for us. That Jesus comes to comfort us 
in our spiritual exile. Our spiritual exile is over. Our spiritual isolation and annexation and separation from God is over. Our slavery to sin is over. Our sins are forgiven. We've been singing about that this morning. Our sins are forgiven. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the enormous amount of sin that you have racked up this morning and over your entire lifetime is forgiven. It is erased. Like we read in Psalm 103 at the start of the service, as far as the east is from the west, that is how far God has removed our sin from us. It is no longer ours to bear. But until we put our faith in Jesus, we are all in that spiritual exile. Until we bow the knee and worship God and surrender to Him and receive Him, we are in a state of spiritual alienation from God. Every one of us. Not a single person has ever managed to clean themselves up enough to give themselves right standing with God. None of us have done it. The popular notion of Christianity, the popular belief, the false belief, about what it means to be a Christian is that you've got to kind of tidy yourself up, tidy up the house, get it in, in order, and then God will one day come and look at how sincere you've been and how hard you've tried, and he'll be merciful and gracious based on that. And, and then he'll give you his grace and mercy. But actually, there's no amount of tidying or cleaning of our own hearts, of our own lives. There's no amount of morality that we can keep and hold to that will make us worthy of of God's glory that will make us able to be in right standing with God, that will actually make us right before God. And the absence of that right standing with God is what I'm referring to here as spiritual exile. We we can't stand before God and be okay. We're we're alienated, we are separated, we are enmity, enmity and we are at a distance from God. Before we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that's that's our spiritual state, our spiritual exile. And there's nothing that we can do about it. We don't we don't want to. Before the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes to the glory of God and Jesus Christ and convinces us that He is the only way that we can be made right with God, that we can have life in Jesus, and that salvation is found only in Him. We are quite content at being in charge and operating as our own rulers. And it's a disaster. We weren't created to live away from God. But spiritual exile is very real and is is the very reality for each one of us until God brings us out of exile. And when we are in exile, we are slaves. If you're here and you're a Christian... You are a person who is free from, this, from slavery to sin. That is your reality. You no longer have to do what your sinful nature tells you to do anymore. You are free from sin. But before God releases us from captivity to sin, that's our state. We are under the curse of sin. And sin has a particular sting to it. The curse has a particular sting to it. We're disheveled, we're off kilter, and there's a spanner in the works of our life. That's the sting, and it's, it's the awareness that life is not as it should be. It's the sting of exile. It's the sting that we all seek comfort from. And even though, yes, we have been freed up from sin, we've been freed and been made sons and daughters of God, there is still the residual sin that, that we, we live under, that, that curse of sin still. There is still this world that is marred by sin that we still have to walk through, and we still feel that sting. 
Becoming a Christian does not mean that everything automatically goes perfect all the time. For some of us, that sting is financial, and we just can't seem to catch a break. For others, that sting is relational. It's broken relationships. It's, uh, it's been estranged from loved ones. For some of us, the sting is guilt and shame in our lives, either from sins that we have endured from others or sins that we have committed against others, and we cannot seem to shake it. It's, it's like it's a, it poisons everything, it hangs over our head, poisons all of our joy. For some of us, the sting is anxiety and worry. It's irrational and fills us with fear that rises up without warning and it exaggerates everything into a hostile threat. For some, the sting is unmet expectations. That you've had a, you've had a plan, your life had a trajectory, and you, it just hasn't gone that way. For some... The sting is recurring sin and you just can't seem to shake it no matter how hard you try and you feel hopelessly alone and embarrassed by it. And for others, the sting is just a vague apathy towards God. There was once a fire there, but now that fire has gone cold. That's the sting of spiritual exile. And it says this, and the message is always the same. This is you. This is your lot in life. This is how God feels about you. There's no fixing this. There's no rescue for this. No one cares. God doesn't love you. Why would he ever love you when you are such a wretch? That's the sting. That's the sting that we're, we're often tempted to believe, that God could never love us. And all of those things are really just the symptoms of the deeper issue. It's, it's the sin that has separated us from God, the sin that has put us into spiritual exile. Our sin has separated us from God in ways that we cannot fix or repair. And without God coming to us and saving us, we have no hope of ever being saved from spiritual exile. But because of Jesus Christ, we are saved from it. We can be saved from it. We can be saved from it. If John truly is that voice in the desert, then it means that the arrival of Jesus is the end of spiritual exile, the end of slavery, the pardoning, pardoning of sins and iniquities. Jesus came to forgive our sin. Jesus came to set us free from captivity for sin. And Jesus came to end our spiritual exile. And that is your reality if you are in Christ. If you trust in Jesus for your salvation, if he is your king, if you've come to him with the empty hands of faith and said, I, I've got nothing to give, but, but I'm, I will receive your forgiveness. I, I believe in you. I believe in, in, in that you are the king, that you are the God of the universe, and I believe that your, that your, your, your death on the cross took my sin. It was enough to completely pay for all of my sins and I believe that I'm a new creation. If we come to Jesus and we believe in him, we trust in him, our reality, the truest thing about us is that we have been freed from spiritual exile, that we are set free from sin, that it no longer controls us anymore. That is who you are. You're a son or a daughter of God. But here's the thing. 
our hearts still feel the sting of spiritual exile. And we are so, so often will be tempted to look towards other things other than Jesus to remedy our hearts in all sorts of different ways. It might be that we try and just shore up our lifestyle, like accumulate some funds, get a better house, get a better car, and then you'll be okay. Have the nice things, believe the lie. Those things will comfort you. That will be your comfort. That will get rid of the sting. Other, other things, other remedies require us to get the best career, the best body, the be- become the best version of ourselves. And the promise there is that if you look a particular way, if you earn a particular amount, if you have a particular uh, career or whatever it is, if, you're, like, if you follow these steps, then the sting will go away. Other remedies are things like just get married Achieve something in life or, or go and reinvent yourself, pull up the stumps and go escape, do something different altogether. But friends, none of those things are actually adequate enough to address the real problem. Asking things such as a lifestyle or a career or marriage or whatever to address the problem of sin, asking something other than Jesus to address the problem of sin in our life is kind of like asking a boat to become a submarine. If you force a boat underwater and try and make it a submarine, it will not only fail to be a submarine, it will also cease to function as a boat. If you're trying to get something other than Jesus to save you, you'll crush that thing under the weight of your expectations. So what is the central piece of this comfort? When God says to his people, comfort, comfort. How is it that he comforts his people? Sins forgiven, spiritual exile over. But what is the central piece of that? Well, let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, just a few verses later. He says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. That word good news there is the exact same word the New Testament uses for gospel. He says, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. There we see it again. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. So whatever he's about to say right now is the gospel. He's just mentioned it twice. Say to the cities of Judah, this is the gospel, behold your God. God's comfort to us primarily is not that he will take away the things that give us grief. Sometimes that is the case, but God makes no such promise, not in this life anyway. The gospel is not a healed body. The gospel is not financial security. The gospel is not a bigger house or a husband or a wife or anything like that. God's comfort to us in the gospel is that he gives us himself. God is the good news. God is the gospel. More than we need money to ease our financial strains. More than we need miracles to heal our bodies. More than we need peace to drive away our anxiety. More than we need our expectations to suddenly be met. We need God. If God only cared about giving us those things and not giving us himself, he would be withholding from us and it would not be good news. No, God gives us his best, and his best is himself. He gave us his son, Jesus. 
And the reason why that's the good news that we need is because that's what we were created for. We were not created to live apart from God. We were not created to be in spiritual exile from God. We were created to have him, to be with him, to know him, to possess him, to abide with him. When John said, I am the voice, he was pointing to God. I'm the one who's making the way straight for God to come. Who is John the Baptist? He's not the Messiah. He's not Elijah. He's not the prophet. He's the one who prepared the way for God to come to earth. And this brings us to the final point, what John the Baptist does. If I could simplify it, what John the Baptist does is he tells us that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the way that we are made right before God. In these last few verses, John says, and says a couple of things. He points us to Jesus, first of all. He says, there's one among you who you don't know. He exalts Jesus. <clears throat> he talks about himself being unworthy to um, even untie Jesus' sandals, which means that, that that's the position of like the lowliest or the second lowest servant, I'm told. That there's a servant in the, in the master's house who comes and when the master gets home, he, that servant undoes the sandals. And John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. He, he's exalting Jesus. He's saying Jesus is far more important, far too important for me to even touch his feet. And he also tells us, he communicates the truth that we are only right before God by receiving the righteousness of God. And bear with me for a second, because I think this is here. In verse 24, it tells us that the delegates who had been sent, uh, the, the priests and the Levites who had been sent from the Jews in Jerusalem, it gets a little bit clearer here. It says that they were sent by the Pharisees. And so we have the Pharisees, we have the priests, and we have the Levites. And, and these groups of people together, kind of lumped together by John, stand for the collective group who, by and large, rejected Jesus. And their fundamental belief, the, the fundamental belief that was espoused by these people was that the only way that you could be made right with God was that if you were born into God's family and if you maintain a strong degree of obedience to God's law. That's how you become right with God. That's what they taught. But John Bush is back here. And it becomes a bit of a precursor of the new covenant that, that Jesus was making, that actually the gospel isn't just for the people of Israel. It's actually... For Gentiles in the whole world. In verse 25, they ask him, Why then do you baptize if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet? And I think that's a really good question. Why was John baptizing? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, we know baptism now as a public declaration of faith that is made both by an individual and the church to say, This person is a believer, this person is a Christian. Why was John doing it? This is before the church. This is before Jesus. Why was John baptizing? And it's not that it was a, t a totally different thing. Baptism back then, w the way that John was doing it there, you, it was one of, part of the ceremonial washings, that um, one of many, but it was one where a Gentile, somebody who wasn't a Jew, somebody who wasn't born into Israel, wasn't born into the family of Israel, they would be, if they wanted to become Jewish, if they wanted to convert, convert to Judaism, they would go through this ritual washing called baptism where they would, be, where they would go through this, they would be dunked under the water and, be, and become part of the people of God. 
Now, what's strange here is that John wasn't baptizing Gentiles. He was baptizing Jews. Why are you baptizing, John? Why are you baptizing Jews here? See, if you were a Jew going out to be baptized by John, it was because, because John was a baptism of repentance, we're told. It's because you were recognizing, I'm not right with God. And John's baptism of repentance was a means of saying, I'm not right with God and I need to repent. And that's what John was calling the people of God to do. He's baptizing Jews. He's making a very subtle hint. To be made right with God, to be made righteous, you need to repent. It's not enough to be born a Jew And he's signaling that the old way of being made right with God was coming to an end. It it would no longer be for those who were born into God's family. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can come to God. The way that we are made righteous is not by by cleaning ourselves up. It's not by having the right credentials. It's not by being better than other people. We are made righteous only when we trust in Jesus. See, the, the problem that we face in our lives, the, 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 the fundamental problem underneath every single problem we ever face in our lives is the sin that has separated us from God. And, and what we need is to be made righteous. We need to be, the sin to be removed from us and for us to be in right standing with God. And we can't do that in and of ourselves, but through Jesus Christ, our sins, when we put our trust in Him and believe That on the cross, he took the punishment for our sins. Our sins are removed from us. Another thing happens, we are imputed with the righteousness of God. That Jesus' perfect record of obedience is actually credited to our accounts by faith. That, That when we put our faith in Jesus, we are made righteous before God. That when he looks at us, he sees Jesus' perfect record of obedience. And that's our comfort. That's our comfort that when we stand before God, we stand, uh, when we stand before God in faith, we stand not with a righteousness of our own, but we stand with a righteousness that He has given us. He has demanded righteousness from us and He has given righteousness to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He has given what He has demanded for. That's the good news of the gospel. It's, free, it's the free gift of grace. It's not because we've done anything to deserve it or to earn it or to merit it. It's the free gift of grace. As we finish up, I want to leave you with a question. What is the most troubling thing in your life right now? What is the thing that just... it causes you stress. It causes you worry. It causes you anxiety. It could be financial. It could be relational. It could be anything. It could be big. It could be small. But whenever you think of that thing, it just uh, it, t- it makes your heart go a little bit colder. Identify that thing. And then bring that thing into the light of Jesus Christ. And, and allow your heart to be comforted by this fact. My truest reality What is true about me is that I have been made righteous by God. My eternity has been changed forever. My future is incredibly bright. 
that God has removed my sin from me. He has made me right with himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Let your hearts be comforted by the gospel. Returning again to 2 Corinthians 1.4, he comforts us all in all of our affliction. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We have received the comfort of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's go and comfort others now. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 